Let me see Pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, as we come to you right now, Lord, we just praise you and thank you for who you are. Lord, as we've already sung this morning and, and seen in the videos, Lord, that you are the only one, our only hope, the only name, our solid rock, rock of ages. So God, this morning as we now open the word and have a time of preaching and teaching, Lord, I pray that you would be honored as you've already been honored through this music. God, that you'd help us turn our eyes off of ourselves and onto you alone. And God, we just want to praise you and thank you and honor you and want you to receive all the glory. Lord, may I be minimized and may you be maximized in today's message. Lord, we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, about 492 years ago, on October 31st, there was a knock on a door. Now, it wasn't the knock of a trick-or-treater asking for goodies. It was the knock, knocking sound of a hammer, banging a nail into the door. Bang, bang, bang. With the swing of a hammer and the nailing up of a document on the door of a church, a monumental swing in world history began. A movement, a renewal, a special move of God. Now the man doing the swinging, see if my clicker is going to work. The man doing the swinging was Martin Luther, and the door is the door of the castle church in Wittenberg, Germany. And the document has become known as Luther's 95 Theses, specifically protesting the church in Rome's fundraising campaign is really what it was. They took advantage of and taught people that they could buy their way and their relatives' way out of God's punishment, of course, depending on how much they gave. Thus, a protest against the abuses and the corruption of the church that became known as the Protestant Reformation began. It would have a ripple effect throughout history that still profoundly affects us today in ways you may not even realize. Socially, it gave individuals the freedom to speak and to write. Politically, it led to the recognition of equality among men and the creation of representative forms of government. Even economically, it can be tied to free market economics and gave workers a new sense of dignity for their labors. Educationally, it gave impetus to universal literacy a common, as common people acquired the intellectual tools to read the Bible for themselves. But most importantly, it altered the course of the church. As one pastor put it, do you enjoy congregational singing? Well, then thank the reformers for reviving it. Do you prefer having the Bible read in your own language? Well, then thank Martin Luther and his German Bible for paving the way for a host of new translations. Is your soul spiritually fed by preaching? Then thank the reformers for restoring the preached word to its central place in the life of the people of God. Do you believe in the ministry of the lay people? Then thank the reformers for emphasizing it. Do you know the answer to the question, what must I do to be saved? Then thank Martin Luther for rescuing the biblical answer to that question from the fog of superstition that it had become obscured in for centuries. Luther and the reformers' goal was to fight the corruption in the church and more importantly bring the church back to the heart of the gospel. 
And that's the title of a short mini-series that we're going to be doing today and next week. Just a two-week series. We're going to break away from our series in Acts. We've been going through the book of Acts verse by verse, chapter by chapter. And uh, we're breaking away because what I want us to build a tradition of doing here in our church is every time we get close to October 31st, which is not just Halloween, it's also Reformation Day, I want us to take a Sunday where we look back at the history of the church, perhaps a, an important historical figure. Uh, last year we looked at um, William Wilberforce. There we go. It was only one year ago. You'd think I'd remember that. William Wilberforce. And we looked at the importance of having an influence in, in culture, an influence in life, being a person of influence. And so we preached a sermon on that. And today we're going to look at the five, today and next week, the five solas of the Reformation. We're going to look at how important the Protestant Reformation is and how it brought the church back to the heart of the gospel. So we're going to look um, the first week today, um, we're going to look at the first two solas, which is sola scriptura, which means, well, the word sola means alone or only, okay? So sola scriptura means scripture alone, okay? The Bible is our one message, our one authority from God for our faith. And then also today we're going to look at solus Christus, which is, means Christ alone. Jesus is the only way, our one mediator in between man and God. He's our only hope for salvation. And then next week, uh, Deemer is going to cover the last three solas, which is one, solo gratia, which is grace alone. Only by God's grace are we saved. It's our only method for salvation. And then the next week, sola fide, which is faith alone. Faith is our only means to receive God's grace. And then finally, the last thing we're going to look at next week is soli deo gloria, which is um, for God's glory alone, which means we only have one ambition. One ambition. These five things are going to be our focus over the next uh, couple of weeks. If heresy or false teaching or doctrinal contamination and worldly corruption were fought 500 years ago by focusing on these five pillars, well then we should be focusing on them today as well because you know what, there's nothing new under the sun. The Bible says in Ecclesiastes 1.9, what has been is what will be and what has been done is what will be done and there is nothing new under the heaven. The same viruses that infected the church back, the doctrinal viruses and heresies that infected the church 500, 1,000 years ago have always been the tools Satan has used to fight against the church. So today, it's just approaching the church in new clothing. And so it's always important to be a church that's focused on the heart of the gospel. Uh, to kind of illustrate that, I want two kids to help me this morning. Um, right back there. All right, come on up. First hand up. I want you to draw for me. Just come on over here and kind of stay right here. I want you to draw for me a rainbow, all right, using that, that pen there, all right? And I'd like for someone over here, Noah, you want to help me? I want you to draw me a rainbow using that right there, all right? Okay. So we're going to see which rainbow turns out better. So you guys, we're not going to take real long to do this, all right? So when you got your rainbow done, I want you to let me know, okay? So, yeah, there we go, okay. All right, looking good there. All right, now what I want us to see as they draw these two pictures, I want us to see how important it is to focus on these five things. We're not looking back at these things because... Luther came up with um, some really great system of theology. Or, and actually these five solas, 
emerged as the Reformation went along. It wasn't like Luther when he nailed the 95 Theses, which were specifically combating one specific problem in the, in the church in Rome, which was that there was a guy named um, Johann uh, Tetzel who was going around selling indulgences. Now, what is that? He was selling, uh, basically, he was going around telling people, if you buy these indulgences, you can buy your relatives out of purgatory, or you can buy yourself out of purgatory once you get there. But actually, you're not buying them out of purgatory. You actually can just reduce their stay from about 1,000 years to 100 years by buying these indulgences. And the reason they were selling these indulgences is because they needed to remodel St. Peter's Basilica. And so they needed to remodel the church, and they started a fundraising campaign to buy people out of, out, of, out of purgatory. And so this is what they were doing. They were selling these things, and Luther had had it up to here. He had seen enough corruption in the church, and so he nails these 95 theses against the wall. One of them said, you know what, why is the Pope asking for everyone else's money when he's got more than everyone else? And so he got pretty um, brave, bold with what he was saying. And during those times, it's not like today. You know, you guys can send me an email and criticize me as much as you want to, and you don't have to worry about it, okay? You can just hit send and forget about it. But back then, you say some of the things that Luther was saying, it meant you faced an execution chair, or not a chair, a stack of wood or something, all right? You faced execution if you criticized the church because the church had become corrupt partially because it had become so entwined with the government. And to go against the government was tantamount to... Um, going against the state, going against um, the very political structures of the day. Now, how are these that are coming along? Are you doing all right? All right, let me see your, um, your beautiful rainbow over here. All right, this is one rainbow here. Okay, thank you very much. You can have a seat now. Very good. That's pretty good for what he had, which was just a pin. Noah, let me see your rainbow here. All right, and then here's Noah's rainbow over here. And what I wanted us to see by this, and Noah's got five colors. So I want us to kind of think of the five solas kind of as, as this. They, the, the, you don't really have a rainbow unless you have the colors. This could be just about anything. It could just be, I don't know, an archway of some sort. This could be the St. Louis arch if you want it to be, whatever. You did a great job, but I did not give you the tools to really come up with a good rainbow. Now, I gave Noah the tools to come up with the rainbow. So I want us to see these five solas. These five, they're five pillars of the gospel. And if we're really going to see the gospel, if we're going to see the beauty of the gospel, then we have to embrace these five things. And that's what the church realized. That's what Luther realized. And he was calling the church back to the truth, back to the gospel. He wasn't calling them just to fight against corruption. He was saying, hey, let's get back to the truth. Let's get back to the gospel. His goal wasn't to start a new wing of the church. His goal was to reform the whole church. Let's get back to the gospel. And so that's what these five solas are all about. It's all about the gospel. As an evangelical Christian, okay, we believe in the gospel. Evangel means good news, gospel. And so we are Christians only so far as we trust in the gospel message because Romans 1.16 says the gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Without the gospel, we're simply another religious group of people doing stuff to try to impress God and work our way into his presence. Now, I'm going to be all over the place today looking at different scriptures, but you can go ahead and turn, if you want, to Galatians chapter 1, verses 6 through 10. I'm going to start right there, but like I said, as I go through this today, I'm going to be bouncing all over the place with different scriptures to support these five solas. Well, the first two of the five solas. But Galatians chapter 1, verses 6 through 10 
is a very important passage. A very important passage to get us focused on the gospel. Why is the gospel so important? Can we change the gospel? Can we make it a little bit different today? See, we have the same problems today. People come today and want to change the gospel a bit. Want to change some of these five solas. Well, maybe Christ isn't the only way. Uh, maybe Scripture isn't our only authority. And so we can't alter the gospel. We can't stray from it because the, the Bible won't let us stray for it, from it. Galatians 1, verses 6 through 10 say this. This is Paul speaking. He says, I'm astonished that you're so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who would trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. Because even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. For I am now speaking, or I'm not seeking, I'm sorry, for am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant. Christ. So this is the gospel. This is the gospel that we've received. The gospel message of Christ. And no matter who stands up here, if it's a person, if it's an angel, and they preach a gospel contrary to what we've received, the Bible says let that person or that angel be accursed. A lot of the, a lot of the cults that you'll see today, a lot of times these guys will say, well, an angel appeared to me and gave me a new message. An angel appeared to me and gave me a new message, and I've written it down, and here's what it is. But it ends up being contrary to the gospel. It ends up teaching something other than grace, that you're saved by grace, you're saved through faith, that, you're, that Christ alone, that the scriptures alone. It ends up teaching something totally different. And so it's not, it doesn't measure up to this, and therefore it's not a true gospel. And why do we stray from the gospel? Well, I think the end of this passage here is the key. It tells us why we stray from the gospel, because Paul says... For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? And you know when we begin to stray from the gospel? It's when our focus becomes man-centered and not God-centered. The gospel is radically God-centered. The five solas are radically God-centered. And we stray from the gospel when we become, we become man-centered. Any form of man-centeredness. Maybe just, hey, I want attention. That's man-centeredness. Or even when we distort the gospel just to make it some sort of social apparatus in the world to, just to help people when they're in trouble. If that's all the church is, when a lot of churches have gone that direction, it just becomes a social entity to, for good in society. And therefore, it only exists to help people through their situations, maybe homelessness or whatever else. And those are all things the church should be tackling. But it's not necessarily the gospel. The gospel are these five things that we're going to talk about. These things are the heart of the gospel and anytime we begin to become begin to become man-centered we lose our focus on God and lose our focus therefore on the gospel and in an effort to keep Harbin's Community Baptist Church God-centered Christ-centered gospel-centered which are all synonymous today and next week we're going to look at the five solas so let me go forward here so today one message and one mediator next week we'll look at one method, one means, and one ambition. So first, one message. So on your notes there, the first blank you fill out is one message. That's our first focus today. The Bible alone is our ultimate authority for
for faith and practice. I want to read a passage of scripture for you. Since we've been looking at Acts and we've heard Peter speak a lot, I'm going to read from 2 Peter, 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 16 through 21. This is what Peter said about the Bible. He says, For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from the Father, from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased, we ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. And we have something more sure, the prophetic word to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So the first thing we're going to look at is the Bible alone. The Bible alone, number one, is authored by God. The Bible alone is authored by God. 2 Timothy 3.16 says, All Scripture is breathed out, breathed out by God. Comes from God's very mouth, breathed out by God, and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. Okay? Verse 21 of the passage we just read is how Peter puts it. No prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. This is key. If you're going to be a person who embraces the gospel, then you've got to embrace God's message of the gospel. God communicates the gospel to us through his word. And so we must embrace his word as what it says it is, which is inspired, breathed out by God. It's the only document like that. Now, other uh, uh, cults and, and, and religions will produce documents that they'll say that are divinely inspired documents. But the Bible's the only one that holds up to the tests of whether or not it really is a divine document, whether or not it really is authored by God. Now, God used different people to author the Bible. And so he did not bypass their personalities. He did not bypass their historical context. He used them in the situations they were in, and so we see their personalities come through in the Bible. But it's an amazing document because it covers a span of over 2,000 years, written by over 40 authors, yet it's completely consistent. It's completely consistent about who God is. It has no contradiction in it. Now, we could go into a much more lengthy um, de defense of why the Bible is uh, God's Word, why it's, it's reliable. Matter of fact, we spent a sermon series last year, seven weeks, on that topic alone, just looking at why the Bible is God's Word. And uh, I don't know if you remember that series or not, but it was called Text Message. And we focused on these important proofs of why the Bible is what it says it is. So first of all, it, the Bible alone is authored by God. That's why we believe in Sola Scriptura. It, the Bible alone is God's flawless self-revelation. Every word of God proves true. He is a shield to those who take refuge in him. Proverbs 35. The Bible is God's self-revelation. He hasn't left himself without a testimony of who he is. And it's a revelation of himself. The Bible alone also is a perfect and true guide for life. Psalm 119, 105 says, Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. And God's word alone points exclusively to 
Christ. John 5, 39 says, You search the Scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me. And I read that verse last week as well. That's Jesus speaking there. The Bible points directly to Jesus. You know, there's other good books out there. But the Bible alone is our perfect guide for life, our perfect self-revelation of God. The Bible alone is authored by God. The Bible alone points perfectly, and I say perfectly, to Christ. There's other books that point to Christ. I mean, let's see here. I had a book back there I was going to bring up for an illustration. But, you know, there's lots of great books on my shelf written by some really good authors. Some of them are better than others. And they're good biblical books. They, they talk about God. They teach about God. They, they're good. They help us. Some of them are very practical books for, to guide us in life. But none of them meet these qualifications. None of those books. It be, to me, it's kind of like the Bible is like, because it's very living and active, it's like the real person. If, if, if Olivia's here, she's a real live person, and I want to, to know her, and I want to have a relationship with her, and I want her just to, just to, to know me. And it's living, she's living and active, okay? Not too active right now, good. And she's sitting right there. But if I had a photograph of Olivia over here, I couldn't interact with it. It's not active. It's just sitting there. It may be a good picture of her. It may look a lot like her. And I could even say that's Olivia, but it's not really Olivia because Olivia is right there. It's all other Bible books. There's some good stuff out there, and I encourage people to read. Try to read. Read a lot. Read books you don't necessarily agree with, too, so that you can sharpen your thinking. Read, read, read. But the Bible alone is the book that meets all these qualifications. And therefore, the reformers said this book has to be in the hands of people. And so they began to really push that the Bible needs to be read in people's languages. At that time, the Bible was read in Latin. And nobody knew Latin except for the priest and the other people running the church. And so people would be sitting there and, and they would just nod and they would even repeat some of the Latin phrases and they had no idea what was being taught. And so the reformers believed that no... This book, this Bible, needs to be taught. It needs to be taught, it needs to be read, it needs to be in the language of the people. Our confession of faith, the Baptist faith and message, says this. The Holy Bible was written by men, divinely inspired, and is God's revelation of himself to man. It is a perfect treasure of divine instruction. It has God for its author, salvation for its end, and truth without any mixture of error for its matter. Therefore, all Scripture is totally true and trustworthy. It reveals the principles by which God judges us and therefore is and will remain to the end of the world the true center of Christian union and the supreme standard by which all human conduct, creeds, and religious opinions should be tried. All Scripture is a testimony to Christ, who is himself the focus of divine revelation. That's what we believe, and that's what the Reformers believed. All corruptions, all heresies usually start with a compromise of God's Word. Okay, whether it be Mary Baker Eddy adding her own prophecies to the Bible, Joseph Smith, Ellen White, or the Watchtower Press, or even traditions being added to the Bible. Okay, and that was the problem during the day of the Reformers. That there were certain traditions in place that the church practiced that were not exactly, didn't exactly square with the Bible, but they were held to, in some cases, even higher than the Bible. The traditions were more important than the Bible. Jesus said to the Pharisees, you leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. He wasn't commending the Pharisees. He was condemning them. 
He says, you're leaving behind the Word of God and you're holding to these traditions and you're making them more important than the Word of God. And so, just as Jesus condemned the Pharisees, the Reformers began to push back and say, no, we cannot hold traditions higher than God. And some people take away from the Bible. Okay, you guys probably have heard, um, kids, you've studied Thomas Jefferson. You know what Thomas Jefferson did the Bible? He didn't really like the New Testament, especially the part about miracles. So he took the Gospels and took his scissors and cut out every passage he didn't believe was true. And edited the Bible down to the way he liked it. And you know what? That's the other error. You either take from it or you add to it. And if you do either one of those two things, you've fallen into error and we begin to compromise God's word, and that's when problems begin to creep into the church. So in Luther's day, it was both of these things. There was control of the people by not letting them read the Bible, by not um, letting them read the Bible in their own language, and saying that only priests could interpret the Bible, or church leaders. Now this may sound like 500 years ago this doesn't happen today. I grew up overseas on the mission field in a country called Ecuador. I grew up in a country where the church and the state are very, very closely tied together. So that when Wycliffe translators came in, if you know who Wycliffe is, Wycliffe's a Bible translating ministry organization. When Wycliffe came in to translate the Bible into some of the Indian languages, the church convinced the government to kick them out. Because they didn't want the Bible in the languages of the, of the Indians because they knew they could control the Indians through two things. One, not letting them be able to read first of all so there weren't even any schools secondly don't let them read the bible definitely in their language and thirdly mix superstition in with that and we've got total control over this population of people and that was the way it functioned and that wasn't 500 years ago i'm not that old okay that was 20 years ago and so even today it still happens and people that's the way cults usually work is control control Control, And that's what was happening during that time. Now, the doctrine of sola scriptura does not mean just rampant individualism. It doesn't mean that D can just take the Bible and say, well, I think, you know, I read the Bible and I think I can have 20 wives. So I'm just going to go for 20 wives. You know, he can't, can't do that, all right? Okay, that, that, it's not just rampant individualism that you can just do whatever you want to with the Bible. God still gives us, according to the scriptures, he gives us leaders and teachers Okay, and we still have to interpret, we have to use good biblical um, methods of interpretation of God's scripture. You know, Paul told Timothy this, he said, preach the word and be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort. In other words, there's rebuking that goes on when people stray from this or interpret it in their own way. Okay, reprove, rebuke, exhort and complete with complete patience and teaching for a time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching but have itching ears will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. So in the culture we live in today the Bible has become neglected again just like it was 500 years ago but this time it's by choice. 500 years ago it wasn't by choice it was by force. And now we can thank the reformers, we can thank them for the increase in literacy and that people can now read and read the Bible for themselves. But today, although we can read the Bible for ourselves, we make a choice to just set it aside. And no longer by force are we not able to read, it's simply by our own choices. And when we intentionally 
or maybe a non, aunt, non, aunt, not intentionally try to neglect God's word, there's a vacuum of authority in our life. Because the Bible's our authority. And when that vacuum of authority is there, something else will fill it in. Something else will fill it in. Okay, when there's a vacuum, if you take a church, any organization, and you don't have leadership, and there's a vacuum, leaders will emerge. And so in our lives, if we don't have leadership from God's word, we don't have it, we don't place it into our life, we don't abide in it, there's a hole there, and something else will emerge and will guide our lifestyle. Desperate housewives will emerge and guide our lifestyle. Okay? Survivor on Thursday nights at 7 o'clock will invade our life and guide our lifestyle. Whatever it is. Fox News will guide our life. In a, whatever it is that takes the place of spending time in this word will be what guides your life. Period. And so, today, we need a reformation in our own lives. A reformation that again puts this in the center. Again says, hey, this is God's only revelation for life. You've got to abide in it. You've got to let it be part of your life. But even in the church, I read this. I'll read you what I read and just see how you guys react. This is what a leader in a church said recently. He says, the Bible is just another member of the community of faith. And what it says is important, but not ultimate. Truth, therefore, is determined by the full community of faith and not Scripture alone. Now, what that person is saying is that the Bible is important, but... The Bible is just another person in the community of faith. In other words, what Deemer says is on equal level with what the Bible says. And what Toby says is on equal level with what the Bible says. And what you say, and then therefore truth is determined by a consensus of all of us together. And the Bible is just another member of the community that we consult. But it's not the ultimate guide for the community of faith. And I would love to say that that's just an aberration, that's just one church, but that's not. It's a very common thing that's emerging right now in church circles. But that can't be, that's not what the reformers fought for. The reformers didn't fight for the Bible just to be another contributor in the community of faith. They fought for sola scriptura, that the Bible alone is our guide for faith and for practice. This is what Martin Luther said when he was on trial. Now remember... Or he was being interrogated. Now remember, you go against the church back then, it wasn't just, oh, okay, you're not a member anymore, we're taking you off of the directory, all right? That wasn't the way it worked. We're taking you out was more like it. And this is what he said when they asked him to recant. And he said, unless I'm convicted by the scripture and plain reason, I do not accept the authority of popes or councils, for they have contradicted each other. My conscience is captive to the word of God. I cannot, I will not recant anything. For to go against conscience is neither right nor safe. Here I stand, I can do no otherwise. God help me. He couldn't go against the word of God. He wasn't going to recant because he knew this was his authority for life. And the reason it's worth dying for, the reason the scriptures are worth dying for, is because it only points in one direction. It points to... Christ alone, it points to one mediator, solus Christos. So the next blank on your notes is one mediator. Jesus is our one. He's our one what? 
Well, he's our one person in which to place faith. He's our one person in which to place faith. Now, I want you to understand that during this time, you've got to kind of have a picture of what's going on during these days when Luther is teaching and preaching and the Protestant Reformation is beginning to happen. Okay, the average person in Luther's day viewed God as unapproachable and as unappeasable. If he or she worked hard enough and did the right things, observed the right practices, he might be in better off standing, but he still wasn't in good enough standing. So in steps the church, the priests, the ministers of the church. In Luther's day, the priest, the minister, was seen as having a special connection with God, that therefore he mediated God's grace to them. And this is very important to understand because this is the difference. I don't mediate anything to you guys as a pastor. I may preach and I may teach, but you have a direct connection to God if and only if you've received Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. He's your mediator between you and God. Okay, we teach, I teach, Deemer teaches, we have others that will emerge and teach in this church because that's what the Bible prescribes and we, we edify one another through the preaching and the teaching of the Word. But there's only one mediator and that's Jesus Christ. But in Luther's day... The priests were seen as having this special connection. They mediated God's grace and forgiveness through the sacraments. The church taught that Jesus' body was literally re-sacrificed every time communion happened. So that Jesus' body was re-sacrificed, and the priest was the one sacrificing Christ when he broke the bread. He was re-sacrificing Christ, and Jesus' blood was, was being reapplied at that time. The church taught that forgiveness of sin could only come through the confession of sin specifically to a priest and the priest's pronouncement of that sin forgiven. The church taught that people could even get better standing with God through the visiting of relics or shrines. Okay, when I lived in Ecuador, there were shrines all over the place. Shrines. Even Luther, even Luther, when before he became convicted by Scripture of the truth, okay, he believed that, that saints or even past relatives could mediate or intercede on their behalf. So when Luther became a, the way he became a monk is kind of a funny story. He's, he's um, riding his horse and he's going through the countryside and, and lightning strikes, almost hits him. He falls down and he cries out to St. Anne. He says, St. Anne, save me and I'll become a monk. Okay, so he, he prays not to Christ, but to St. Anne. Now St. Anne was the patron saint of miners. All right, and the city he came from was known for its mining. So he prays to St. Anne okay, and he he didn't get struck by lightning, so he ends up becoming a monk. Thank goodness, because it was through his study of Scripture that he realized, wait a second. And so, during that time, there was, there was a view of that saints could intercede for people. But even with the mediation of a priest, the endless re-sacrificing of Christ, confession of sin over and over, the intercession of Mary or the saints or family members, and of good behavior to boot, it was still not enough. So purgatory awaited all people who weren't good enough and who weren't perfect. And you could spend thousands of years there unless you paid off your debt through the giving of, well, certain alms or um, indulgences to the church. So, this was the climate that Luther was living in. And he boldly, along with others, stood up and said, no, this is not what the Scripture teaches. The Scripture teaches that Jesus alone is our person in which to place faith. Acts 4.12 says there's no salvation. There is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. No other name. Okay, Jesus alone is our one mediator 
between us and God. Jesus is our one mediator between us and God. 1 Timothy 2, 5, For there is, no, there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. Jesus is our one intercessor before a holy God. Romans 8, 34, Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, he who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Christ alone. Christ alone is the one we place our hope in. Christ alone is the one who's mediating between us and God. Christ alone is the intercessor. But also, Jesus is our one sacrifice for all our sins who was offered once for all. It's important. Christ isn't re-sacrificed and re-sacrificed and re-sacrificed. According to what the Bible says in Hebrews 10, 12, and then also in 7, 27, it says, When Christ had offered up for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. He has no need like those high priests to offer sacrifices daily for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. So the Bible clearly teaches there's no need for priests. I mean, it can't say it any clearer than Hebrews 7, 27. I am not your priest. You have no need for a priest if you're a believer. Because the Bible says that Jesus is your high priest. He's done it all. He sat down at the right hand of the Father once for all, offering himself up as a sacrifice. And Jesus is our one way to the Father. John 14, 6, you know this verse. Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And Jesus is our one righteousness acceptable to God. 1 Corinthians 10, I mean, 1 Corinthians 1, verse 30. He is the source of your life in Christ Jesus, whom God made our wisdom and our righteousness and sanctification and redemption. One, solo, Christ alone. Solos Christos, Jesus alone. Due to the totally sufficient and complete work of Christ, we now have access to the Father through him. Anything else is a myth created by man anything else if anyone tells you there's any other way that you any other step you need to take in order to get to the father any other step you need to take any other thing you need to do it is a myth the kind of myths that paul told timothy to have nothing to do with it is a myth because the bible says jesus is the only way to the father jesus is our only connection to god so today we face this challenge as well just like luther did if we add anything to Christ, Christ plus anything is not the gospel. Christ plus anything is not the gospel. Christ plus legalism. Christ plus attendance at church. Now hopefully you attend church and you do things that are keeping with a righteous lifestyle because Christ is in you and you desire those things. But if you're here this morning and you think that somehow you're getting a check mark in heaven, then you've added something to the gospel. If you do anything in your Christian walk, if you read the Bible like I challenged you a minute ago, and you read it because you think that somehow it's going to make you in better standing with God, then you've added something to the gospel. The gospel is Jesus alone. You read the Bible because you love Jesus alone. That's why. And so, Jesus alone. So we add to Jesus today just like people added to Jesus back then. Man-centered religion always moves away from God and begins to point towards ourselves, and we begin to boast in ourselves. Let the one who boasts boast only in the Lord, is what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 1, 31. 
So we should approach God's throne of grace with confidence. Not confidence in what we've done. Not confidence in how good we are. Not confidence in what denomination we belong to. But confidence in the finished, unique, and totally sufficient work of Jesus Christ alone. So the five solas, the first two, Scripture alone and Christ alone, are not some old, antiquated, outdated argument that bears no relevance today. That's not the case. Okay, to, to not study history and learn what our forefathers and what our, those who went before us believed in and taught is to run the risk of falling into the same error they fought against. And so we look at these things not because... Okay, I like, I know some people can't stand history. I love history. Noah loves history. Okay, some of my family love history. But Heather doesn't love history, all right? But, but Noah and I love history. But we don't do this because we love history. We do this because if we don't pay attention to what those who've gone before us have taught and have learned and the experiences they went through, we're going to fall back into the same mistakes. And you see it over and over again. The very same things that the reformers fought against are emerging again in the church, and they have before. They emerged 50 years ago, and 60 years before that, and 70 years before that, and they, they, they keep coming back up. Satan's pretty unimaginative in my mind. He just puts new clothes on the same arguments and sends it back into the church. All right, try to, let's, let's stray them away again. Let's get them away from the gospel, because Satan knows if he can get your eyes off of the one way to get to heaven, which is through the gospel then he's won. That's all he needs. That's all he needs is to get you a little bit off of the one way to God, which is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so these things are important. I want Harbin's to be a church that God wants it to be. I want it to be a church that understands these truths, stands by these truths, that has determination as much as Luther had. I mean, it's really easy in our chairs here, in our school that we're allowed to meet in, to say, yeah, I have Man, Christ alone, Scripture alone, grace alone, faith alone, for God's glory alone. But if there was a man standing in here with a machine gun saying, anyone who believes those five things, please stand up. Then all of a sudden it doesn't become so easy. So we need to pray for God to give us the resolve. The men and the women of the Reformation put their lives on the line. Have you ever read any of the story of some of the martyrdom that happened during the Reformation? Go read some of it. It's a pretty cruel deaths that not only the men received, but the women and the children received. Whole families being killed because they believe in the gospel. So I want us to be a church that has a heart for the gospel. I want us to pray and then sing a couple of songs, and then I'll have a few announcements to make. But let's just bow our heads and close our eyes, and let's pray. And I want us to think about how seriously we take the gospel. Heavenly Father, Lord, I come to you right now and I ask, Father, for your forgiveness. Your forgiveness of my sins um, that I've committed even today, Lord. The sins that have kept me from uh, presenting your word the way it needed to be today. Father, I pray that you would just bring forth truth and, Lord, just, just erase and minimize stupid things I've said, the ways I've messed up today, and just bring forth your truth. But, God, I confess to you there's times when the church, God, I... I Sometimes doing church has just become the wrong thing. It's become set up on Sunday morning. It's become what kind of songs we're going to sing. It's become 
of, oh, am I going to offend somebody by being dressed this way? It's become so many things that it doesn't need to become, God, because I've gotten my eyes off the heart of the gospel and begin to worry about myself and what people think about me or what people think about our church. God, forgive me of my sin. Forgive us of our sin. Forgive us for being so prone to wander, so prone to have our eyes begin to look on ourselves instead of look towards you. Because it's for your glory alone, God. We're saved by your grace alone, through faith alone, through Christ, by Christ alone, his finished work alone. And your word alone teaches us these things. So God, help us this morning to be a gospel-centered church, Christ-centered church, God-centered church. And forgive us, Lord, for the many times in our lives when we aren't that way. So now, Lord, as we sing these songs, we want you to be honored. We want you to be praised and glorified. So God, now, just, just use these, these songs to infect our heart with a passion for the gospel. So God, we ask all this in the precious name of Jesus, our only mediator, we pray. Amen. Please stand if you would as we sing these songs. And remember, there's, two, there's, there's multiple ways you can respond. After God has ministered to you through the word, you can respond just in your chair there, just speaking to God. If you need someone to speak to, I'm always available up here. You can take me aside and talk to me. If you want to just respond by bringing your prayer card up here, that's what the wicker basket is for. And you can come grab someone else's prayer request and be praying for that. Perhaps you want to respond to the giving of your offering today. That's what the... Uh, the box up there is for. So let's just take this time for all of us to respond to God's word. Just invite you right now to lift your soul up to God. This says in Psalm 25, to you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. He's worthy of it. He's worthy of you lifting your soul to him. It's also for your good. It's for our good. To you, O oh Lord. To you, O oh Lord, I lift my soul, place my trust in, in you, O oh God, I place my trust. And do not let me be put to shame. For me, my hope is in you. Show me your ways, guide me in truth. In all my days, my hope is in you. I am, O oh Lord. salvation so guard my life and rescue me my broken spirit shouts my mended heart cries out my hope is in you show me your ways guide me Yeah. 
We're going to keep going with uh, singing psalms. These are my favorite kind of songs, the ones that just sing the Word of God, because the Word of God does not return void. Um, sing better is one day. This is written from Psalm 84. Better is one day in your course. Better is one. 